I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Ways Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, and I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue's Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise, and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Associated Preserve Edenville community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, Kimberly Williams talked with Maurice Broaddus in Edenville, Florida, about his work in Afrofuturism. Broaddus is a writer, a community organizer, and a teacher. His books include the Urban Fantasy Trilogy, The Knights of Bread and Court, the steampunk novelella, Buffalo Soldier, the steampunk novel, Pimp My Airship, and a detective novel, The Usual Suspects. Have a listen to their conversation. Thank you so much for your time mm-hmm. this morning. No problem. Um, first things first, I would love to hear about yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came into this work of Afrofuturism? Oh, okay. Uh, so I have been writing basically all of my life. Let's see, I was born in London. And my brother, my mother was born in Jamaica. And uh, so we moved to the country probably when I was about six or seven years old. And uh, they didn't know what to do with me in the American school system. Um, so they skipped me up a grade or two. And then the teacher uh, just sort of stuck me in the back of the classroom and put a stack of paper on my desk and said, yeah, you're just going to create this year because we don't want to skip you up another year. So we're just going to give you paper and you just do your thing. Okay. Um, by fifth grade, I uh, won an award for an essay I wrote. Um, I wish I still had that essay, actually. But I also wrote a short story. So I wrote an essay and a short story that year. Uh, my short story I still have. It was uh, called The Big Mac Attacker, because I was in fifth grade. Um, <laughs> by high school, um, uh, a teacher really encouraged me to uh, pursue writing, um, sort of gave me my own curriculum to go by. Um, and my own, he basically had his own standard by which I was going to be judged for my writing because he was just like, no, you, you have something here, so we're going to push you in different directions. Um, now, in college, I ended up kind of putting away writing because uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college But my, because uh, my mom wanted me to do something respectable, mm-hmm. and so she wasn't going to pay for a creative writing degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I ended up being, uh, I saw a degree in biology. Okay. Um, but about halfway through my college career, I kind of started sneaking in some creative writing classes, um, including the, um, I did an independent study class, and, uh, and the professor was like, well, did you look me up first? And I was like, no, they pa- paired me up randomly. And uh, he goes, I did my dissertation in Stephen King and Clive Barker. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And so that, that just set me down my career of like, all right, let's, let's seriously pursue this. That's a wonderful, like a wonderful transition and like faded story into into your career and passion. Right. That's nice. Well, and how do you how do you define Afrofuturism? 
Um, let's see. So Afrofuturism, I see as culture through the black, uh, well, any sort of arts through the black cultural lens. Um, Afrofuturism is very much rooted in the past um, that offers a critique of the present, but always with an eye towards the future. Um, I also do a lot of activism work, and uh, and so the Afrofuturism actually has, a, has had a deep impact on my activism work also, um, because it's uh, one of the things we realized is that uh, you know we don't allow ourselves spaces to dream. And so, um, even in the activism work, I mean, we're so busy about the business of surviving today that we don't take the time to dream about what tomorrow could be. And so, uh, it's sort of, so there's a sort of very intentionality about dreaming about what tomorrow could look like. And then, you know what, if that's what tomorrow could look like, let's start working towards that goal now. Mm. So. That is wonderful. Yeah. That's so wonderful to hear because when I think about also your work, um, with the Oaks Academy, and then with the, is it pronounced Kepra? Uh, Kepra. 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 Yes. Oh yeah, good luck with that name. Yes, Kepra, yeah. yes. So how do you, then how do you think about fusing and looking at Afrofuturism in that work, in that social justice work? Yeah, so, and actually, and so I'm also a, a person of faith. And so, and so it all ties together for me, mm-hmm. because uh, what I realize is that all of this is about operating out of a sense of a future hope. Mm-hmm. And so it's a future hope for the world, a future mm-hmm. hope for my students, a future hope for my kids. Yeah. Um, and so it's all about uh, working towards this future hope, but living in, in light of that future hope today. Yeah, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And how, from your perspective, um, what does Afrofuturism offer society right now. So you want know, to know some of that you touched on, but it can yeah. offer like a critique, a liberation opportunity. Oh yeah, it's, it's all that. So uh, so for a start, Afrofuturism opens, uh, provides a mirror. Mm-hmm. It's like, here's where we are, and here's who we are. And it's important that you see us. I always struggled with my activism work, because I'm just like, well, I'm just a writer. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like? It, well, both in terms of my activism and in terms of my faith. Yeah, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like uh, from a faith perspective, what does that look like to join in God's redemptive work of, on this planet mm. as a writer? Mm-hmm. Um, as an activist, what does it look like to use my gifts as a writer to move any of the social justice work forward? What does that look like? And so one of the things, I was working with a group called The Learning Tree in Indianapolis. Mm. One of the projects we were doing, uh, we called them uh, portfolios. Mm-hmm. And so what we were doing, we were just going and interviewing neighbors, just people next door, people on the street. Um, getting to know them, and then you know, just asking them questions about themselves. You know, what what are you passionate about? What are your gifts? What talents do you offer the community? What are things that you could teach? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What motivates you to uh, to to get up? And so we start asking these sort of very intentional questions as a way to create profiles on, on who are the gifts and in, in, in the community and what what gifts do people offer? And then I'd write up profiles about them. Uh, and, and so I'd write up these profiles, and then I'd hand the profiles back to them like a you know, week or, or two weeks later. It's like, here's how you're seen by the community. And then all of a sudden you have these people who are just like, wait a second, I do this? This is who I am? And this is how community sees me? And it was just that whole idea of like, you know what, we don't often get a chance to see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, how the community sees and values us. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of that work of and so when I say, what does Afrofuturism offer? It offers up a chance for us to see ourselves. Mm. And, uh, mm. 
and one of the things I talked about with my kids at the, at the Oaks Academy, because one of the things that we're about at the Oaks Academy is not just seeing you for who you are, but we also see you for the infinite possibilities of who you could be. And I think that's an important part that Afrofuturism offers also, is that there's an infinite array of possibilities for us. Um, so we don't, have, we don't have to be trapped by these old narratives. We don't have to be trapped and defined by these stories of stories that have been put on us, not even written by us, but stories that have been put on us. So what does it look like to create our own stories and to imagine our own futures and imagine our own possibilities and then start living into that? Wonderful, wonderful. Where do you, I'm just where do you see um, the, your faith and Afrofuturism sort of like uh, collide together or create together? Do you see like a constraint at times or conflict or is it, does it one speak to the other? Well, so I actually came up as a horror writer yeah. So you can only imagine uh, the sort of conflicts and stuff that would evolve, you know, being a horror writer and a Christian at the same time. So it's just like, ah! like everywhere I go. So it's like, you know, obviously conflicts within church, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, writing for me is always about working out, um, working out things for me. I mean, one of the reasons I was a horror writer, I look back on it, is because I had a lot of rage to work out. Yeah. A lot of rage and a lot of pain that I was working through. Yes. And I did that through the horror lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with the Afrofuturism, it's like now my lens is sort of shifted, mm. so that I, I get to tell different stories. Yeah. Um, and so the Afrofuturism, like I said, comes back to that whole idea of there's a future hope, mm. but we can create that hope. So what what is it, what is the future we are trying to create? Mm. And so I'm all about dreaming about the best possible futures for us. That's wonderful. And in your mind. Um, what is this, as we turn into thinking about Afrofuturism and Zora Neale Hurston, mm-hmm. um, and you're from a reference in your mind, what is the link between Hurston and Afrofuturism? Well, for a start, to be straight, it's about living your authentic self mm-hmm. right now in the present. Mm-hmm. And she was a model for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to live my authentic, lived experience right now all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me, you know, I turned 50 this year. I'm just now feeling comfortable in my own skin to be able to live my authentic self. But, mm-hmm. And so to have that as a model is just like, no, the sooner you can get there, the sooner, the sooner you'll be at peace with yourself and in the world. That's very true. And so, uh, mm-hmm. so she, she's very much that for me. And then the whole idea of just living into your passions, living into, you know, this world of art. And, and how and, and all the possibilities that art can do, um, not just in the, not just in the sense of art for its own sake, but in terms of what it can do in terms of building and shaping community. Um, those are some other aspects I don't think people really appreciate is the whole idea of the whole community that was established via art uh, through her. So uh, these are important things I think that I've taken to my own practice. It's like it's not just about the writing itself; it's about the communities that we build along the way. So I've been very intentional about that as a part of my journey as an artist. Okay. And do you think that uh, Zora Neale Hurston, the, the festival engagement with Afrofuturism, continues Hurston's legacy? Oh, absolutely. Because she dream- she was a dreamer. Mm-hmm. She was a dreamer. And, uh, and in some ways, we are the dream <laughs> that, that, that she was dreaming of. So, uh, so the idea of well, us being able to gather in this space like this is huge. And the idea of bringing together this generation's dreamers who are still dreaming for an even better future for us. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very strong continuation of uh, her vision and mission. And what can contemporary 
um, Afrofuturists mm-hmm. learn from Hurston and and other black black scholars and Afrofuturists. Um. So, you know, at the very beginning I said that Afrofusion is about being rooted in your past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, that, it's not just that they are, are part, part of our past, but they are foundational for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't be here without them. So the idea of, you know, respecting your, your ancestors and your elders. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I wouldn't be here without them. So everything I do starts with by honoring them. And so when you think about... Is that I really, I really like what you were talking about before in terms of thinking about like rage and horror. Mm-hmm. What were some particular figures, and some some films that I think were really representative of that transition, um, and then getting into Afrofuturism? Uh, films and figures for as far as my horror writing stuff. Yes. Oh. So on the movie side. You can pretty much draw a straight line for uh, for, for me, uh, starting with the, the movie "Do the Right Thing." Actually, yeah, "Do the Right Thing" was was uh, a pivotal moment for me. That that movie, I mean, just it just left me shook. I mean, when I saw the movie for the first time, after they rolled the credits, I, mean, I just sat there in the movie theater for an extra ten minutes. Mm-hmm. I was just shook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then move forward a little bit uh, to uh, the movie "Candyman." which is still one of my favorite horror movies of all time. <laughs> um, and, and just the, the figure, that, that, that tragic figure that, uh, that, that he represents. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, have those two, um, and then along with uh, uh, Public Enemy being one of my uh, formative uh, musical uh, influences. And then, uh, then we've uh, moved forward. So uh, in, in terms of shaping me, probably the three, three critical works for me um, one was actually by Stephen King. Um, he had a novel called Desperation, mm. and uh, and like I said, I've always struggled and questioned uh, with my faith. And so the whole plot of uh, the whole theme of, of the the novel Desperation was uh, you're either living in a state of faith or you're living in a state of desperation. Mm. And uh, and that uh, informed me a lot of how I could use my faith worldview as a part of my writing. You know, to ask certain questions and, and, and to provide certain journeys for people. So I was like, oh, okay, that, that's clear for me. Um, then came Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Sower, mm-hmm. um, which taught me a lot about, you know, just examining your present and what it means to survive your present. Um, and then lastly, it'd be uh, Walter Mosley's Futureland. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Mosley's mo- mostly known as a, as a crime writer. Yes. But uh, uh, his... his uh, and Futureland is a collection of like nine short, uh, nine interconnected short stories. Um, but th- that was the first time that my eyes got open to, wait a second, I can, I can do stuff dreaming about a future. I didn't know we could do that. And and just that, and, and his ability to build worlds and to imagine futures and these deeply intricate examinations of politics and economics and uh, uh, oppression, oppressive systems. I'm just like. So it was both in a future and it and it uh, disentangled the past. I mean, my present also. Yes. Um, so I was, uh, so that pro- that is probably the when it comes to driving me towards uh, Afrofuturism, it started right there with Futureland, mm-hmm. Walt Mosley's Futureland. Okay. Right. And, and and lastly, I was just wanting to know about your so your multi genre, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, like novellas, short stories, um, editors of collections. Um, how do you sort of like uh, navigate and negotiate that multi-genre? And also, too, are you considering thinking about even expanding that into into other genres? 
Yeah, um, so part of it is about, I mean, just as an artist, I'm trying to navigate what it looked like to be a professional artist. Okay. So, you know, I'm constantly seeking out uh, opportunities, um, never placing all your eggs in one basket because, you know, well, for a start, just even in publishing, things change. You know, what's hot one moment, what genre is hot one moment, might not be hot uh, next. And, right. and my job is to, you know, keep surviving. I've been, this is my, 2019 marked my 20th year as a professional writer. So a lot of it has been about, you know, constantly seeking out new opportunities and partly just thinking outside the box. Because, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a writer, it's like, well, my first love, for example, is short stories. Mm -hmm. It's hard to build a career off short stories and short stories alone. But short stories gives me a great way to work out different muscles when it comes to uh, my creative writing. Um, and so, so, you know, so I have my short stories and I have uh, the novellas and I have the no novels because... You know, uh, in the modern age, your career is marked by novels largely. Mm -hmm. So, and that's and so that partly just a sheer practical consideration. Um, now, as a as a creative, sometimes it's just a matter of what's it, what's interesting to me right now. What story do I want to tell right now? I mean, I'm, right now I'm the author of a middle grade uh, detective novel series. Yeah. Uh, that started off from me going, "Hey, I wonder if I could write Elmore Leonard for kids uh, and entertain my son at the same time." Uh, and so it started as a project. Like, can I entertain my son with this story? And so now suddenly I'm a, a middle grade author. But, you know, sometimes it's just about, you know, what opportunities pop up, you know, or what challenges come, come along the way. Um, you know, like uh, in the last week, I've turned in a, a novel project, and I turned in a gaming project, and I turned in a play project. Um, three very different areas, but but part of the challenge for me was like these are three different, very very different modes of storytelling, and so how does each one challenge my ability to tell stories, and so and I love that as, as a creative, you know I'm all about how do how am I challenged, what can I do next, how can I you know take my game to another level, and so I'm just constantly in that mode of all right what's next, give me a challenge. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, that concludes um, the interview. Did you have any other any other thoughts or you know, comments? Well, I always got thoughts, so you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing right now. But you provoke me, and then yeah. psh, I'll just let it all fly loose. Okay. <laughs> but no, I'm good. I'm Thank good. you. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast, the official podcast of the Zoya Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida the Association to Preserve Evenville Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode.